This episode of The Hour on the Renewal Ministries Podcast Network is brought to you by Renewal Ministries, 40 years of Catholic renewal and evangelization around the world, founded by Dr. Ralph Martin, Peter Herbeck, Sister Ann Shields, Debbie Herbeck, of course, along with Peter, and a whole host of others who are actively just trying to spread the gospel wherever the Lord opens a door. We believe that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. We believe that everyone needs to come into a life-giving relationship with him, drop their nets, begin to follow him, live as his disciple, and go make disciples of all nations as well in the heart of the Catholic Church. We are excited to be Catholic. We're excited to be disciples. And uh, as you can tell, I'm excited about this particular podcast. Um, One thing to highlight in Renewal Ministries, we have a new website, renewalministries.net. You can go and have easy access to all that Renewal Ministries has to offer, including this show. So if you are not listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts, you can find the hour now prominently displayed on the front page of the Renewal Ministries website. Also, I want to highlight that coming down uh, the pike here in the coming weeks, we're going to be promoting Ralph's new book, A Church in Crisis, Pathways Forward. And um, we're very excited about it. Uh, I've read it, and it is going to make a massive contribution to the church and to, as the title implies, uh, Pathways Forward, of how we can live still in peace and joy and love, even in the midst of some very difficult times in our world and in the church. Our guest today is another very good friend of mine. His name is Tim Glemkowski. I met Tim at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. When I was a transfer, he was the cool kid on campus. I wanted to be his friend, and he was kind enough to be mine. After college, uh, he went on a journey with the Lord, which included some time in seminary, which he talks about. But uh, what we tried to recreate, well, and I should say, then it didn't, and then he left the seminary, discerned out, and married Maggie, and they ha- now have three wonderful, beautiful children, and he lives in Denver, Colorado. Uh, today, we, we talked to all sorts of different topics, mostly just kind of like, what's going on in parishes? What's going on with evangelization? What's the Spirit saying to him? Uh, this conversation really felt like what this podcast was supposed to be, uh, an assessment of the hour in an honest way, um, challenging way, but in an honest way. So, Uh, I hope you enjoy it. I think you will. And then I close the episode just as always with a few thoughts on what the Lord is saying to me in this time. So um, that's what we're doing today on the hour. Hope you enjoy it. But first, my friend, Connor Flanagan. All right, I'm here with Tim Glemkowski. Tim. Thanks for coming on the hour. Thanks for having me, Pete. Great to be here. Uh, when I started this podcast, this is true, I actually thought of you kind of right away because you have two things going for you that makes you a perfect guest for this uh, show. One is you have a great voice for podcasts. You just do. <laughs> <laughs> that Midwest, uh, Chicago. I get Bishop Barron a lot. I don't know if you've ever... I don't know if I've mentioned that to you, but people will say, I think, and I think it's literally just the Chicago accent. Like we say certain vowels the same way or something. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's appealing and it, and you have a good resonance to it. So that's one. And then second is we've had so many conversations over the years that in hindsight, I've thought, gosh, if we had just recorded that, that's a podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. So no pressure, but the, the vibe I'm going for or the the goal of this conversation is to walk away feeling like that was one of our conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And full disclosure, I mean, people should know. So we knew each other in college and Pete, uh, you gave me uh, a home to live in for like three <laughs> or four months. Uh, when I was, I was leaving seminary, moving Dan Arbor to teach high school theology at Father Gabriel Richard high school. And I, which a job, which you had like, you know, kind of put in a good word for me for. Sure. And then your family was moving. Uh, like you had just bought your first house or like moving into your first house. And so I like you, you housed me at your first place and then transitioned me to your home. So I'm, I'm, I'm eternally indebted to you and <laughs> yeah, appreciate you having me. Oh my, no, my pleasure. And, and throughout the context of all that, one of the things that has always been fun is whatever subject it is and some of spiritual, some temporal, some sport, some other, uh, I can always count on you for a, a good opinion, a well thought out opinion and uh, one that we can unpack together. So um, I appreciate that. Yeah. So let's just dive in. Uh, 
I started this with the interview with uh, Chris Frank too, because I just think it's a, a good way to set the table and let the spirit move. But um, a lot going on in our culture right now, a lot of confusion, um, chaos in some ways between COVID-19, between racial tension, all these different things, all worth paying attention to. But I'm really curious, what is the Lord saying to you, Tim? Um, and we can get into the ramifications for the church and, and all that and mission and how we're supposed to live as disciples in this moment and all that. But I'm just really curious, from just from a personal standpoint, what's going on in your heart, uh, in your family? What's the Lord kind of personally speaking to you? Yeah. Um, so our verse for, you know, throughout like quarantine and, um, yeah, I feel like the Lord's actually been giving my wife a lot of words recently. Like I, I've actually kind of even prayed for that. Like I, sometimes I don't trust my own ability to discern really what God is doing in my, my own heart. Um, but I feel like she has such a gift for seeing clearly. So I've actually been like praying, like show Maggie what, what it is that you're telling us. And, um, the verse that keeps coming back to, to both of us, it was even this Sunday on our anniversary um, the gospel at mass was come to all you labor and are wearied and I will give you rest. And I think for us, yeah, we're kind of in the season of transition in ministry where we're really praying through in a new way. Like what is the new kind of um, assignment in some ways that the Lord is like preparing for us and what's he doing? And um, we're, we're kind of pushing into new spaces and thinking and kind of dreaming new dreams and stuff. And so I feel like for me, it's almost been in some ways throughout the last four or five months, this period of, um, I don't know where uh, like restoration where each week has almost had a different theme. Like I couldn't point to one thing. Certainly that's been the overarching theme is that kind of idea of restoration and rest and um, finding, you know, peace and, uh, and, and kind of like coming back to first principles in God. But it, the context has kind of changed every week where there's been like different, like last week, the thing I felt God really wanted to show us had to do with um, like identity and calling. We saw this um, kind of paragraph someone had written, like the difference between, calling and like the unique calling God has on your life, which is attached somehow to your identity, which is different than the assignment, like the current season that the Lord has you in. And it allows for that persistence of like the God's always going to be doing something that's rooted in your calling or helping your calling to be coming out. But the assignment might look like different things in different seasons and the ability and the willingness to be flexible, to kind of follow him through the twists and turns. I know Christine Kane, who's a favorite of mine, she's kind of said that, that like all the things she's doing now has been the culmination of 20, 30 years of different things God did. And it didn't always make sense. And um, so I think that's, that's what I've been praying through this week, but. I'm really, let's dive into the the calling versus assignment, because I think that's a very um, intriguing distinction uh, because I, and, it, and maybe to put a, a Catholic term on there too, would be, like vocation. And, and so how would you, how would you f- frame it from that standpoint? So there's clearly distinctions in assignments, things that the Lord has called us to do. And there's off, there's also a distinction in vocations and, but how would you distinguish between like a calling and vocation and like, yeah, how do, how do those two things fit together? Yeah, I think th- this is one of the things that's on my heart a lot for the church is like a greater sense for, I would love for every Catholic in the pews sitting there to have a really clear idea in their head. Like God is actively well, like inviting me and welcoming me into a mission that he has for me. Like, I just don't think that's always very clear in a lot of our minds. Um, I think, and I think in some ways because we, and I had kind of a complicated vocational discernment, so I probably have a little bit of an extra, you know, that's probably a little bit of an extra frustration for me in some time, some ways, but I think we, because we've only, we've delineated like vocation or calling that language in our context as um, like a state in life, you know, the choice of a permanent vocation that you like live into in a way of kind of like living out love um, in a sacramental way, you know, marriage or priesthood, I guess single life as well, you know, but then some people get funny about that. But because we have that, we make, make it all about that big decision. I think sometimes we miss too, like the more specific and unique ways that God, so like that idea of a calling attached to like, who am I uh, distinct and unique from you people, like both of us in ministry, both of us fathers, both of us who men who want to see the church renewed, but like, what are the unique ways that I've been crafted? My heart, you know, someone says like your calling is the place where your unique gifting meets the world's unique need. And that's always going to look really individual to me. And it's going to be something that you almost have to become. And God's going to lead you through twists and turns and valleys and hills to, to forge you and make you into that. So you can actually live into that vocation of that, that calling effectively 
in a way that bears fruit in the world and isn't just rooted in your own, like your brokenness isn't, um, you know, becoming an obstacle to your ability to be like piped through uh, for the Holy Spirit to be piped through you. Um, I think that's, everyone has that in some ways. And that's, I think the adventure of life is caught up in that mission. And it's a little more interesting than just this one kind of bicameral decision we make at some point in our lives for what state of life we're going to um, live in. That's, that's the beginning of the journey, not the, not the destination. Yeah. And I think that's a wound many young people experience from the church is um, an undue preoccupation with big V vocation which would, you know, be more the state of life vocation. Are you going single or, you know, married or priest religious, that type of discernment. And most dioceses and parishes pump some resources into that journey for people. Um, But along the way, what we're really talking about is developing you into a disciple, a mature disciple, a mature disciple who's then able to discern from the Lord. Okay as my identity as a son or daughter of the King and my identity as a disciple of Jesus Christ is developed and deepened and strengthened out of that emerges, or maybe a better way to put it is bestowed um, a particular way to express those fundamental identities. But like we almost put the cart before the horse. It's like, well, you can't really discern the priesthood in married life until you, have discerned and been formed into a disciple. Um, yeah. And, and that, and cause each disciple by nature of their baptism and, and, but conversion has a call on their life. And there's how many scriptures are there where it talks about one body, many parts that we need, we need hands, we need eyes, we need noses, we need everybody. Like Paul talks about it all the time when he's talking to these early churches, like help people discern what the Lord has put into them for the building up for the fullness of the body of Christ here on earth. Yep. And I do, I th- and I think we do not enough of that, you know, and I think it, it's not just even, it's not even part of, it's one of those things. There's so many things that are not part of the culture of the way we experience parish life or Catholicism in general. I think that's one of the, yeah. So for like, for me, I, you know, I had my conversion when I was 18. I just kind of like partied a lot in high school and played a lot of f- football. I was always like a nice person. I wasn't like a a tool, but, um, you know, I just kind of like had more of a rugged past, I guess, in terms of, but it came from a very Catholic family and had my, my kind of like, you know, um, moment of encounter that led to eventually, you know, kind of a conversion experience when I was like in and around my senior year in high school, was a a student bill conference. And I think in a lot of ways then, then, you know, began to burn within me. I'd go to daily mass. I remember I'd received the Eucharist and I was just watching my life be filled with this joy and this meaning and this purpose that I never thought possible as I like really elected to follow God with my life. Like I'm going to hand over and actually live the way. And I remember this, this high school teacher, this is kind of an aside, but this high school teacher told me one time, cause I was a teacher. And so I was like asking him for advice. And um, he was telling me about this conversion that um, this kid in his class had had, or the kid came to him and said, like, the theology you're teaching me is making a lot of sense, but how do I know it's true? And, you know, we could talk about all kinds of different proofs for God's existence or, you know, intellectual arguments and stuff. But the teacher said to him, go live as if it's true for six months and then come back to me and tell me what you think. Hmm. And so the kid leaves the classroom and walks back in and uh, says, well, everything would have to change. He said, exactly. And so the kid entered the church four months later, wow. like it didn't even take him. And I really do. I'm so convicted of that. The idea like that this discipleship, this way is like the way that leads to human flourishing in the human heart. Like, I think that's what convicted me eventually to become like an evangelist is like, I want people to know the life that Jesus Christ brings. That's so different. And so I, I started to experience that. I would remember I kneel in daily mass and just be like, I just want other people to know you know, what I'm coming to learn. And for me, I really interpreted that through the lens of priesthood. Like it was just, that was kind of what that meant to live radical holiness and radical mission, like meant necessarily. Cause I was, I didn't really like, I was shocked when we moved to Ann Arbor and you really saw this community of disciples and a lot of like laymen who had just like really done it. were really like living radical discipleship in the context of married marriage and family life. And that just wasn't something that I was like, as exposed to growing up. It was kind of like, if you want to be, you know, the nice little, uh, you know, you kind of sit in your pew, pay, pray and obey yeah. Catholic that's over here, that's marriage. And mostly what you need to do is just kind of go, um, you know, work a boring corporate job and do that. And then, or there's not, not that all corporate jobs are boring, but you know, that, that was my, my, the impression in my head, or you can live this life of adventure and really give your life to Christ 
and that means to be a priest. And it wasn't, it really wasn't honestly, I think in some ways until Ann Arbor that I really realized like, Oh wait, like that's not, there's all of these um, laymen who are really, you know, living this radical discipleship, or I guess Steubenville in some ways too, seeing some of those examples of like old, because it was older men particularly. I wanted to see people who had done it over the years. Like I knew guys like you and our friends at Steubenville who really like were doing it as college kids, but like, I wanted to see what it looked like with bills and six kids. Like I needed to see that image. And that's what that was. It was very powerful for me. So I did, I spent a year in seminary, Mundelein Seminary outside of Chicago, Bishop Barron's first year as the rector there. And it was great. It was a very positive experience, but it very clarified for me the distinction there finally that it was like this. Um, so, you know, at 22, making that decision of a vocation after a year in seminary that I'm I'm not called to the priesthood, I am being called to the lay vocation. But I think now at 31 is, is only the first times I'm really starting to see in many ways the calling that God has placed on my life. Like the journey that he took Abraham or David or any of these figures, you know, these saints where they kind of clarifying over time, like here's the way your heart has been uniquely crafted for the sake of others. I think I'm only just now starting to sniff, you know, the, the, the real, the inklings of that, I think. Yeah. And if you look at the lives of the saints, many of them, um, I'm thinking about like St. Philip Neri, who was, who was single-handedly in some ways transformed Rome, uh, and brought it back to Jesus. Uh, he started as, Nobody even had any idea who he was. He was just this tutor for a rich guy in Rome and uh, his sons, the, the rich guy's sons. But he just lived this simple life. He got a, I think it was like a bag of grain a week for his service as a tutor. And he would just walk through the city and he would pray and he asked for more. And right around age 29, 30, he had that experience of where like the fireball entered in him and his heart expanded. And But then like, Oh yeah. Over time, what happened was his calling was revealed as the Lord drew him into different assignments. And so sometimes I think our assignments reveal the calling, but can, the temptation can think that like whatever I've been assigned to, whatever the Lord has asked me to do, that is then my identity. And yep. that brings about that distinction between being and doing, that our identity is in who we are and what God has done in us and for us and what he says about us, not what we do for him. Um, and I think that's a temptation all over. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and in particular, I think with young people, right, because we've been, we were kind of raised in this system of like, if you find your passion, all of the desires of your heart will be filled. And we didn't realize the, the lesson that was being taught to us was like, your career path is essentially the path to fulfillment. And so we, we were like taught over the years to conflate assignment with identity. Cause like identity is that thing within you that like is where you come alive and you actually become fire, <laughs> like same Philip near where you like you become what it is God is trying to like forge you into. And that and that is happiness. Like happiness in the, the ancient Greek understanding is a state of being. It's not a feeling. It's like you are eudaimonia, good soldness. Like what you've been crafted into is itself happiness and freedom in some ways. And that's in, I think the path the Lord wants to take us on. But we were really formed it's such a millennial thing to blame stuff on 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 yeah. older people right but we that, that what that is kind of the overarching impression i think i see in a lot of people our age to a degree i mean I, what do you think well i mean think about it what's the number one question when you, when you meet somebody what's the first question people to ask yeah what do you do what do you do hey what do you do you know it's it's and what you're asking is who that, who are you yeah <laughs> we, exactly. we are that's so crazy yeah we want to know more about you so in the in our minds the way to know more about who you are is to ask what you accomplish each day boy that's sinister i don't like that i think that's i think that's interesting and it's a very american thing too right like i feel like people from other countries have said that's not as much of a thing there where that's the first question Right. It's what have you accomplished today? And I'm going to judge the value of you based on what you've accomplished that day. Um, I actually had a buddy of mine who worked in a uh, factory for Ford. Uh, He was part of an assembly line building F-150s. And when people would ask him what he would do, he would say, I build (laughs) F-150s. Yeah. And I just love that because it was like a bigger picture than just I work in a, he could have been like, I'm a factory worker or I'm yeah, a I work on a line and I, yeah, no, I'm yeah. Probably, yeah. And it was like, no, I, what well, he saw the end <laughs> as to what, what he would do. Um, so here's the question then, if, 
if that's what the world is, uh, and let's just say Western culture is drilling into our generation is you are what you do. You are what you accomplish. You're, you are ultimately indistinguishable from the, the deliverable, whatever you produce. Um, clearly that's not the gospel and clearly that's not what scripture says about this, but how do we, how do you change that narrative? And, and then for you personally, how do you enter into a world that that's telling you that's what it's all about? It's even in ministry where people want to know how many people come to your events, how many people listen to this podcast, how many donors do you have? I mean, it's, it's, it's pervaded basically everything. So how do you navigate that and try to reclaim the truth about who you are and then bring that truth to others? Yeah, man, that's a good, that's a really good question. I think, um, undoubtedly that's been the core struggle of, so for the last five years, like four and a half years, I've been doing ministry like through my solo, through my own organization. And I feel like the twists and turns of that, that's been one of the key narrative kind of Um, things. I think in some ways, like, I think some of it is being intentional and like what you choose and like how you do it. I think some of it is like really letting God starve you of it in some ways. Like, I think God will put up with our like BS for lack of a better word. I'm sorry if I'm not allowed to say it, but like he'll put up with it for so long. And then at a certain point, he's like, no, you're my son. And I need more from you than this. Like, I'm not going to let you buy into the lie anymore. And so I'm going to lead you through seasons of desert in order to starve that part of you that thinks that's what really fills you up. Does that make sense? Like, I think it's almost like that radical surrender to actually walk through the desert with him and not freak out in that and not that like, I think he has to teach us over time. It's almost like, um, I did a keto a couple summers ago. Of course Um, you did. Yeah, 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 because I'm yeah, because I'm uh, 31 and alive right now. So I did a I did my season of keto, like we're all called to in this world, and I um, for probably like a month and a half. And after it, I was you know like everyone says, like the carbs and sugar, like it was really unappetizing to me. And I think it's very similar with like honor and acclaim and. Uh, fulfillment coming from success and accomplishment and all that stuff. It's like, can you let him? And it doesn't mean like he's going to, you know, you're going to have to go like live wherever, you know, you're like, it's, it can happen, I think in your daily life and even in the, in your own routine. But I think he will use our circumstances at times, or even maybe just our own experience of those circumstances to starve us of those things so that we stop craving like our appetite for them lessons over time, or we become more detached from them. Yeah. I mean, scripture talks about how, how God is jealous He's jealous yes. of our hearts. He's jealous of our affections and also talks about how the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. So his, his goal is, I mean, sometimes when I reflect on this, I'm, I'm just like, gosh, if I could just live in an eternal perspective like God, uh, because he just, he just sees the end game. You know, he sees the ultimate end, which is like at the end of our lives, he wants to be able to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so, yeah whatever is necessary to help us get to that point, it's like totally worth it. Totally worth it from his perspective. And from our perspective, it, it often the suffering, uh, that either just swirls up because of bad decision or because of external forces or the things that the Lord permits. Um, you know, in the moment they always, it, it, it burns and it, it's painful and it's not enjoyable, but gosh, inevitably, isn't it when you just can, can kind of hand it over to the Lord and, and walk with him in that desert, take on his yoke, but let him carry the yoke with you. Uh, it really does produce these things that if you would ask any of one of us, that's what we want. We want what it ends up producing. We just don't always like what it takes to get there. Yeah. And I think too, like I used to hate when people would, um, talk about, um, you know, like don't be anxious and suffering. Like the scripture talks about that a lot. Like don't have anxiety and and, and, you know, and I was like, first you give that caveat of like, they're not talking about like clinical anxiety or like the experiences of anxiety. But I do think like John of the Cross talks about this in the dark night of the soul. Like the more you can, as you're walking, like you're going through the desert no matter what, but like if you, you can almost, it's like God is trying to craft his image in you. Like almost like he gives his image of it. He's trying to paint his image in you and you can almost like mess up the, the, the work of the Holy spirit in the dark desert by struggling too much. You can like, kick yeah. the pain up and, and mess it up with your own. Um, and I think that's part of it. Like you said, like, it's like, 
having that eternal perspective, allowing the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding to enter your heart. Like these are, these are decisions that we can make. Like I, it's very challenging to me because I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an external processor, which means I'm a, I'm a whiner. Now they don't, they mean different <laughs> things. Right. But like I do, I, I like to, you know, with Maggie, we'll kind of, we're going through something. I, I need to kind of like get my words out and, and I think to talk, you know, that's kind of how I, how I operate and I work, but it, it, it has been, a, so it's been a skill I've had to learn to just learn to like be open, be peaceful, almost to like, let my heart be open and suffering. What suffering can do is it makes us like cramped. We want to like close off and like cramp our hearts and like make everything very small and to like allow it to hurt. And then to keep walking forward, like you said, like that, that is where I think the growth starts to enter in and to not worry about the future, to not worry about what's coming, but to just like keep walking. It's one of the dichotomies of the, the gospel of like, there's no question the Lord calls us to meditate on our death, meditate on the future, meditate on where we are going. And at the same time, not lose sight of the present moment. Uh, it's, it, it's that dichotomy of sitting in the fire of purification and being detached from it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, or, or the, John of the Cross even talks about good thoughts, good feelings, kind of receiving them and then detaching from them, of being able to just maintain a balance of all things in right order, of attachments, desires, feelings, all this. I, I heard the other day that um, a great quote, this that feelings or appetites are wonderful companions, but horrible leaders, that our feelings are great as companions on this journey to help us see where we're going and to help us discern what what's coming and what we want and what we long for, but shouldn't lead us. Uh, and one of the ways we are purified of that relationship is when either our appetites are stripped away or they're left unfulfilled and we have to make a conscious decision to still love, a conscious decision to stay into it. And anyone who's been married, anyone who has kids, Anyone who's been in religious life, anyone who's been human and has to try to navigate this life with others knows what I'm talking about. You have to get to the point where you're choosing to love and serve, choosing to extend mercy, choosing to stay in relationships with people uh, when the feelings aren't there. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's a lot to that. I like that, that they're not, they're not good leaders. Yeah. I do think, yeah, that's, that's, that's another one of those. We have all these aphorisms. Um, right. And one of them, one of them in our culture is like, uh, you know, the culture of the church that we kind of operate in is, um, you know, like kind of consult your own desires to um, like find your vocation or find what God is calling you to, which I think is true, but I think it's more complex than that. I think, I think it's very hard sometimes to actually look inwardly and say, this is what I want. I've always found, um, I don't know, I've always found like, I think personally, I've always discerned better when I look for, you know, there's that classic, like you know, do you see God, the wind is blowing? Do you see the wind? And you're like, yeah, I see the trees. It's like, no, you don't see the wind. You see the, the, the leaves rustling. And it's right. like, that's, that's kind of how I've always um, just been able to discern and kind of see more of, because yeah, when I've tried to chase my desires around or just chase my, um, I don't know, my heart is wounded and it has a hard time. I have a hard time parsing through my own interior life enough to really to, to, to only consult. So I think, I think, I think there is a truth to that, like the deepest desires of your heart and all that stuff. But I think it's, it has to be qualified to a degree. Well, it has to be formed. Uh, the deepest desire of your heart without formation is fickle and like Adam and Eve to be like God. Uh, so unless, unless it, there's, there's a formation process, it can be very dangerous to, to dive deep into your heart without without that or without a guide or without the guideposts of scripture and Jesus and others disciples to lead you. Now, um I want to shift gears a little bit slightly. You wrote a book called Made for Mission. Yep. And yep. kind of re- renewing your parish. And so this I'll get to a question, I promise. Made for Mission, you wrote this book and then I heard you give a talk on the Eucharist the other day that really transfixed my heart. Um because of the clarity of the central role of the Eucharist in our worship and the, the incredible gift the Eucharist is to the church and to us uh, and in part of God's kind of meta narrative, his plan and how the Eucharist fits into all that. And currently 
the parish, as we know it, is the primary vehicle with which the, the body of Christ has access to the Eucharist. And yet, I think most of us who are faithful Catholics would recognize that the current parish structure and model is um, lacking yeah. or struggling, suffering. Yeah. So my question is, is you wrote a book on renewing the parish. What do you actually mean by that? Yeah. Um, because I think, could you define that a little bit more clearly? Because what I heard you talking about in your talk on the Eucharist, I, I'm all about. But what, often when I think about renewing the parish, there's a lot that rises up in me and says, like, I'm not sure I want to renew that. I'm not sure the Lord yeah. wants to renew that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I do think the question is, is like, I think one of the key questions is, is the parish structure and model as it currently stands, is it lacking or is it broken? You know, and I think those are two, I think how, how you answer that question will really change the way you look at um, the whole problem in some ways. Yeah. I think, I think the parish to me is the great missionary opportunity of the church because the parish is the great problem with the missionary efforts of the church. Does that make sense? Like, because it's the, in many ways, I'll just be blunt, like because it's the stopgap to it right now in many ways, it, it also has to be the great opportunity because we have to find a way. Now, I don't think that means probably like in its current iteration. I think that there are like fundamental things that have to change about the way parishes are operating. Like, I don't think it's like we need to do what we're doing, but slightly better in order to be better parishes. I think it's like deep transformation and overhaul and overturning. And I think God is doing that, frankly. Like, I think there's that's happening and or it needs to happen um, in order for us to really like experience fruit. So I think for me, it's like, if you look at this call for the new evangelization, which is like the, the church's radical missionary transformation and conversion that she has to experience so that she can once again, propose Jesus Christ to a culture that thinks they know what he's all about and, 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 and don't have time for that or don't need him. Like, you know, increasingly secularizing cultural moment, right? So this is what John Paul called for us with the, the Vatican council called second Vatican council called for like, this is the moment of the church that we're in. I think for the most part to date, it has existed largely in movements and in apostolates, like extra parochial settings in some ways. But 95% of Catholics have their entire experience of the faith mediated by the local church. And so what I would like to see is parishes operating a little bit more like movements and apostolates instead of, you know, as this distinct thing. Like I think the, the like what's, what, what movements and apostles have always understood is there needs to be formation and there needs to be community and there needs to be radical discipleship and encounter and all those things. And those things just are like almost entirely lacking from like the normal um, parish model these days. So um, I think, yeah, I, I don't, I, I think that's the, the whole premise. It's in some ways, it's still an open-ended question. Like, is the parish, like, is this missionary transformation possible? <laughs> are there too yeah. many, are there, are there such significant deep wounds in, in many of the ways that they operate, um, that are wounding priests and wounding people? Like it's not working for anybody right now. Right. Like, let's be honest. Like it's not, it's not working for, um, for, for really anyone. So I, I think even that distinction Pope Benedict XVI makes with the, the charismatic and hierarchical church, like I think what needs to happen is that more of the charismatic church, and I mean that in the sense of like, just like operating, you know, in, in with the Holy Spirit, not in terms of just um, like the charismatic renewal, you know, as we understand it in the United States, but like that, um, what it brings needs to begin to infuse and suffuse the the hierarchical church more and more to a degree as we become largely again in the united states a movement like we were once we were once a movement uh and um yeah i think there's uh yeah i, I think there's a lot that needs to to happen to see that at a deep deep level but um i do hope that it's possible i i can't say yet that i'm okay with the idea of just like casting parishes to the side, but I do think that they need to grow and change. Yeah. And what I hear you saying is um, basically like the church needs to continue to lean into the movement of the spirit for this time and age and let the spirit burn away what isn't good, <laughs> um, purify what is, and then reveal the next step forward. Because I, I'm not in, and I know you're not either. I'm not of the opinion that like the current parochial system was not a movement of God because sure. I, I'm not 
ready to look back on the last like 1600 years of the church's Christendom growth and be like, nope, Holy Spirit, not present. You know, like that's, that's not right. Nor am I ready to just say, because it was the where the spirit led the church in quote unquote, her heyday in the West, where we have universities and seminaries and, and everybody comes to church because that's what we believe. And there's a prevailing Judeo Christian Catholic worldview in our culture. And, by and large, things are supported. I'm not ready to look back on it and say, oh, it was all good, nor am I ready to look back and say it was all bad. Um, at the same time, the church throughout her history is always reliant on the spirit to reveal the next iteration of our life here as the gates of hell don't prevail. As we continue to assault the kingdom of darkness in the culture, new strategies are needed each and every generation. And so there's got to be things that, about the parish structure that are good and worth protecting and not the least of which of course is the ready access of the sacraments and uh you know preparation to help people be baptized and all these things these are all things that need to be maintained at the same time though clearly we're not playing the same game we were in 1950 um and at what point does the spirit have something to say about that well I would I would suggest now. So within that within that framework, what what do you feel like the spirit is saying to the church in terms of how we can I mean you've been working with parishes like you said for the last four and a half years. So you've you have a quite a bit of experience in the good, the bad, and the ugly of what you're seeing. And I love the idea of movement and hierarchy. You know, I heard another quote the other day of the church is healthiest when she's a movement supported by structure, not a structure trying to be supported by movement, um, that we're building enough structure to keep things moving and stabilized, but not so reliant on structure that nothing's actually moving. So when you actually think about that, what do you have any tangible um, expressions of how you see the spirit leading the church in this way? Yeah, I don't Yeah, it's a good question. I think the predicate of the book, like the simple idea is that parishes are renewed when people are like that. There's really no such thing as like parish renewal per se, but there's just trying to um, switch our structures and our way of acting to simplify and clarify our efforts around the idea that we need to help people make uh, a conscious and personal decision as John Paul II put it to follow Jesus Christ with their life. So it's like as a disciple. So if parishes aren't helping Catholics live holiness, community and mission together, then they need to start doing that. It's like, that's kind of like the simple idea. And like that over time, that effort will itself renew a parish community that like, there's kind of no other way around it. We can do administrative work better. We can uh, do events better. We can do programs better. Like all that's fine. And we'll, and we'll create more kind of like quote unquote vibrant parishes, but we won't see renewed parishes that really take on the character of what the church is supposed to be as like a local missionary outpost. Um, of the new evangelization, which I think is, is what they're, what they're, what they're called to be until we really see them like radically committing to the low and slow work of, of making disciples in that way. So I, st- I do still think that's the calling. I, I will be honest in some way. I mean, the, the American parish system, even in the world is really unique right now, right? Like we're, we're definitely at this switch from Christendom to missiondom that's been taking place, you know, across Western uh, culture for the last, like you said, 60 years or so. But but even in terms of how it's experienced here, like nobody really operates the way we do as this, this nation of immigrants that had these different communities that then like parishes were built out of that. Like the way that has all come to be constructed and then the the efforts we've made to support that parish system is, is really like, I don't think a, a single other country like to the same degree operates the way we do with everything so dependent and relying on the, on the parish. Um, in terms of people's experience of the faith. Um, I, I think I have the sense that God is doing something radically new. If I'm being honest with you, like just to be very blunt, I think I feel like um, in some ways I had more answers uh, even a, a year ago than I do now. If that, if I can be like a hundred percent blunt, like yeah. I think we are really um, um, entering into there are key moments where um, like of, of upheaval where a lot of creation happens. Like if you look at a lot of the companies even that are, are like dominant today in terms of like the, the marketplace, a lot of them were kind of formed and, you know, and, and started around 2008, 
with like the financial crisis. And I have a sense that I don't know what this is going to look like in terms of parish closings and the financial state of the church. And like, I, I think it's, it's very difficult to prognosticate right now, like what this is going to do practically. Like it's going to look like this many parishes to this many parishes or, or the parish is going to become this. But my sense as I listen to the Lord is that this is a time of great, um, of great upheaval in the world, but also in the church and that there needs to be, similarly this sense of like the kind of radical innovation that those you know the ubers of the world kind of were having to you know kind of begin to to do in response to the financial crisis if that makes sense and i think we're scared of innovation as a word as catholics because we associate it with um like a liberalizing element in the church that just wants to you know change doctrine which i think is you know like why we get kind of like gun shy around ideas like that but um, I do think that a lot of how we operate as a church, like if, if we've been talking about renewal and we've been talking about revitalization, I think we need to now be talking about kind of um, what it looks like to really commit to the church looking very different in the United States going forward. And like, we really need to be serious about um, not kind of like dreaming big and almost trying things like, and then iterating on those things and like doing, doing it. I think it needs to, I'm trying, I'm, I'm like stumbling over my words here because I'm trying to find no, the right word to it that doesn't include the word revolution, but I think it's going to look very, very different on the other side of it or it should, if it doesn't, I will be bluntly. I feel like we won't be listening to the Lord and what he's actually saying. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you just said. And what tends to happen, I think, historically within the church when renewal was necessary, there's a couple things that tend to happen. One is um, the Lord puts his finger on men and women who are listening and kind of grants his vision to them. And often then a movement of God emerges from them. Um, so many of the great saints we celebrate, whether that's Francis or Catherine of Siena or Vincent Ferrer or you name it, really, uh, Ignatius, they're, a lot of their calling, here you go again, or maybe their assignment was a, a direct response to the times they were living in, that they they saw, a, this, the Lord gave them vision to see what was happening and then stirred up in them the, the actual courage and the conviction and the innovation for know, for knowing how to respond. And I think what we need to, recognizes that the Lord is putting his finger on different people. And the question is, will the institutional church be reactionary or um, kind of be out in front of it? Like one way or another, change is happening to the church. And again, yeah, I think we need to be really clear. We're not talking about uh, capital T tradition, things that cannot and should not change, nor are we talking about dogma or doctrine, things that are established and are not up for debate. But, what we are talking about is pastoral strategies, structures, um, how things are framed uh, that don't dilute who we are and what we believe, but presented in such a way that takes into account the people we're presenting it to. Um, the realignment of different resources, how, how we train priests, how we equip lay people, even the definition of a parish, all of which there's a lot of room for the spirit to innovate in the hearts and minds of those who are willing to listen. And one way or another, things are going to change just because the world isn't staying the same. And the question is, are we going to try to get out in front of it and be able to re receive people as such? Or are we going to kind of get caught defenseless and be forced to change against our will and without any of our, um, without those the spirit giving us the ability to preemptively make some of those adjustments yeah so like I, the way i see it historically is like right like the 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 new evangelization is inaugurated with the second vatican council and initially like largely it was carried out in movements because the institutional church was often you know like local parishes and stuff were often resistant to kind of you know the 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 new apostolates and movements and and all the stuff that was going on and so what has really been on my heart for the last you know six seven years has been how do we now translate that to the institution where the institution starts to um, you know actually like live into and experience the kind of conversion that it needs in order to um, 
you know, kind of like live out this stuff. And I think now there is like a third phase that's happening. I think to a degree where um, I don't, the, the, the way seems dark to me. Like, I don't think, I don't feel like myself, I have the vision yet for what it will look like. I can't say what it will look like, but I think something, a, a new season um, is really kind of being inaugurated. And I think, um, yeah, we are, we're, what we're currently doing is what we need to do is when you're losing a battle, you need to retreat, kind of galvanize your resources, galvanize your troops, and then kind of advance back out positively. Well, and what we're doing instead, I think is because we're afraid to do that retreat that it takes in order to go back out in the world and mission, like to really look at, you know, kind of like, how do we need to adjust things to actually be effectively on mission? We're just getting kind of like picked off by snipers. We're just kind of out on the front lines and everyone's just all over the place. And we're just kind of like slowly losing ground against um, the culture. So yeah, I think yeah. there's um, it's, we're in that moment we're, whatever the Teresa of Avila moment was, or the Charles Borromeo or the, you know, like all these different periods of renewal, the Francis of Assisi and the Dominic and all these different, like we're in that time. And um they're undoubtedly I'm not the the saint to to lead the charge so I'm hoping that they're out there <laughs> I'm curious in all your work with parishes um what what do you think w- was the the message that was least I'm going to refrain this because this is not how I wanted the question to come out so let me try this again in all your work with parishes how what message do you feel like was least clear or another way to put it, like the thing that you felt like consistently was not being said or not being talked about in the parish environment for the typical parishioner in the pew. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, an answer comes to mind immediately. I don't know if this is like the least. I don't know if I can actually say this is the least. I think um, the I think a few things, like one of the things that always struck me about you, like growing up in this community of discipleship, like you're always an interesting test case to me, right? Because I think one of the things that struck me about you as we became friends was like your radical confidence, even in the midst of like all of our attempts to grow as flawed people, your radical confidence that God loved you. Like the the way you had been established in your identity as a son by your dad and the men around you in the community who had really just kind of, and and the men and women, right? Like who had really just kind of, there was this um, confidence in you with, in terms of how you related to God. Like there was a freedom in it that I never felt like I had. Like I felt like Mm -hmm. my experience growing up in a more kind of like typical suburban uh, Chicago parish was um, the way God was framed and the way it was never, so much was never articulated about how we come to relate to God personally. Like, like from the depths of our heart in our humanity, like in his divinity, that relationship was never like taught and framed and coached. Like so much was assumed and never, and never um, displayed that I felt like a lot of it was pieced together by me over the years or a lot of the answers I came to in my own heart about who God was, what he wanted from me and how he saw me and related to me were much more broken and fraught or things I really had to like, which I think I felt like were things because of the kind of community that you grew up in that you more naturally had just kind of like picked up in the culture. Like, well, of course God loves me. And of course I'm really broken and like, I'm working on that. But um, there was a, there was a freedom there that, that I found that I had never really seen in my own life. I mean, what do you, is that, does that make sense as I say that? Yeah. I mean, as if you told, if you asked me like, what's the, the number one truth in your life, Pete, I would say that God is real and he loves me. You know, that's been the number one thing that's driven. And for me, me growing up, it would have been like, yeah, yeah. And so like, so for me growing up, it would have been God is real and he's vaguely disappointed in me and distant. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like <Yeah. laughs> that, that we have to get, I also think we need to normalize conversion. I think like the idea that conversion is just like some people have crazy lives where they like, you know, are criminals and then they become Catholic. Like, and that's conversion versus like something that everybody undergoes at some point in their life and that we, we don't create a culture on that idea. I think that's really missing. I think the idea of mission is really missing. The idea that you have a unique vocation and calling in your life, no matter what you're doing to bear fruit for the kingdom and to live like the great adventure that God has called you into. I think that's missing. So I think, I think like a few of those things, but I think that would be the fundamental one is just like how would be, and it's not things that are said. It's like everything that's not said. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, like lies just creep into the void because we're not articulating enough, like who God is and what he's actually like. Like I had to go back to scripture and say, like, if someone was saying these things to me, Jesus Christ, like what would, and he claims to be the image of the invisible God. Like he's come to show who the father is to the world. What is my God actually saying about himself and what he's like? Like I had to like go do that work to like unravel all of the things I had developed about how I had come to understand God. Um, and I think that is a really big issue. Yeah. That's a really interesting statement. You just said of some of what is said. It, well, it's, it's less about what was said and more about what wasn't said or the reading between the lines of the, the tone or the, um, the impl- implication or, you know, like this is, yeah, that, that's just, re- I'm like unpacking that as I'm speaking, just like this idea that for Tim Glimkowski growing up Chicago suburbs, you probably heard a million times that God loves you, but the impression you walked away from was like, well, not really. Yeah, you know? that's that, total. I mean, yeah, because you're right. That was, I mean, that was the total, the area, the era of like, kumbaya catechesis so like yeah jesus loves me was a message i was pummeled with but how is it that like it never took root like what was what what, what were we missing or what was i um because that's i'm not the only one right who's like had that kind of you know had has had to have those things unraveled for them at some point yeah I, you know what and i think as i'm as i'm thinking about it the the thing that probably uh the reason it didn't stick so much was maybe the person saying it didn't live like it mattered or you didn't see that reflected in their life. I mean, one of the reasons I knew that God was real and he loved me was not just that I encountered him in a way that I could understand at eight years old, but because like when the really couple dozen different men in my life who bore witness to it, who I respected and loved, and I knew they loved me on a, on just a peak level when they would talk about Jesus, you could just see it. You could just feel it. Like they, they were different about it. There was an energy to them. There was a light in their eyes. There was a passion in the way they spoke about Jesus that made it real. It's just like, you know, when somebody's in love with their wife or not, you know, when somebody's in love with the Cleveland Indians or not. Um, it's probably a bad example because of PC culture right now, Cleveland Indians, you know, but uh, yeah, for now, the, Cle- the Cleveland, whoever's the Cleveland yeah. baseball team. Yeah. The, the Cleveland, the, the, that baseball team from Cleveland. Um, you know what I'm saying though? Like there's there's so much more communicated, not just by what we say. And I think that's one of the interesting things about parish life is if you just looked at it objectively from what is said and done, you could think that many parishes are checking the right boxes. But then why is it not translating into any sort of lived, uh, scalable, um, fruitful mission? And I think a lot of it is because there there isn't really that heart transformation that you you said when you're like, Changing a parish is about changing people. Well, the people aren't really changing, and the people who are in in charge of having them change aren't changed. So it's like this self-perpetuating, I don't know, cycle. Yeah, yeah. I do. I, I, I see very much so. My wife and I have talked about it a lot, that like the image that comes to me so often when I think of the church right now is like Israel. Like when you read the Old Testament and you and you think about this chosen people who has been so blessed by God, like he's not dealt thus with the other nations. He has not shown them how he wants to live in our sacramental economy and the, the, the intensity of the kind of closeness and encounter that God wants to have with us, our rich theology, like all these riches of the church. And I, I do feel sometimes like it's, um, I don't know, God allowed those those exiles for the sake of conversion, the conversion of the people that they would like, as they come to rebuild Jerusalem, uh, you know, in Nehemiah and Ezra, they, they recommit to the, they, they rebuild the structure of the walls and then they, they recommit to the law. And, and I mm-hmm. do, I think the lack of transformation in, I've never thought of that before that way, but I think, I think it's a hundred, because even when I had my conversion, then it was the witness of, I, I remember thinking, I remember thinking is, I don't know if I've ever actually told this, but it was John Boyu from, from Franciscan University of Steubenville. He was one of the speakers that weekend. And I yeah. remember thinking, this is like 2004 when everyone was still like, we were doing, still doing like hand motions and stuff at the conference. Right. But of course, like, yeah. Yeah. I remember. Or, Lord, no, I that high, high, right? but, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I remember th- he gave a talk and it was on the curriculum. I was like preaching the gospel, but the words were a message unlike 
uh, what I had heard before. Like I'd never really heard the gospel and this, this, this call to like hand over your life to God, like preach to me so clearly. But at the same time, it was like, look at that normal, you know, cool guy who is so radically, like so very clearly like passionate and on fire and like full of life as he preaches this message. And it shook me. Like it really, like I, I, I couldn't tell you what the words were from the talk. Right. But like, I, I remember who gave it because the personal witness of it was I had never met a Christian like that. Right. Like I'd never, you know, really encountered something. So yeah, when you, when you can't see it change people's lives, it really messes with the message. It really makes it hard for the message to take root in people's hearts. Yeah. Which then even more demonstrates why stuff like scandal in the church, whether a sex scandal or um, financial scandal or whatever, just is such a, a death blow to the message because um, and in particular for our generation, right? Our generation millennials and down, we have such a radar for <laughs> BS has already been said. So I'm going to say it again, such a radar for BS, right? We just, we can smell it. If you're not authentic, we don't want anything to do with you. Um, which is ironic because we ourselves aren't often very authentic in terms of what we post on Instagram and, and all of that. But <laughs> there's just this, that's why we crave uh, it so much because we're the worst. At it. Right. Exactly. We want something tangible, like Give me the real thing. You know, I, I just want to meet uh, who's it. You, you will know this. Who's the guy who had the quote? Like if I actually met a Christian, I'd become one type of it was it Gandhi or something. Was it Gandhi. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Which probably you didn't say because all these quotes at this point are who knows what they I think it was Michael Scott. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's no, a, I think a, that's it. Like, I think I mean, even I, I don't think people realize the extent to which that summer of scandal in 2018, like really shook a lot of people's faith. Like the amount of conversations I've had even recently with like people that would shock you, right? Who are like, who have really been wounded by the last couple of years and their encounter with, um, you know, some of the, cause I think what was so wounding about it was seeing not just like, we knew there were these bad actors out there and it was heartbreaking to hear these stories and in terms of what some of these people on the ground committed, but the lack of leadership um, yeah. in terms of like what, like really like shook people. Like I, 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 I've been, I was just talking, I was catching up with a buddy of ours from the other night and it was like him expressing some of the, like the ways that that had like really hit at the foundations of his faith and his trust in the church was like wild. Like, you know, people, someone I would have never expected to say like, like this has really kind of shaken me. And I think a little bit like the best analogy for the church right now sometimes is like a really dysfunctional, like a, you know, family where like addiction is present in it, you know, like, um, yeah. I've, I've, we've encountered a few of those families like over time and you, like the ways addiction operates in the, because of the abdic- abdication by, you know, the, the, the parents who are supposed to be the ones who bring control and peace, then the kids start acting in certain ways and sometimes poorly. And some people are trying to rush into the void as the golden children to like bring stability and order to the place. And some people, you know, act out this way. And I see that even when you look at like the online discourse, Bishop Barron said something today about like, just like the, the absolute carnage that is like Twitter and Facebook in terms of Catholic conversations right now. Like I really, that's one of the most discouraging things to me is seeing the kind of the, these pockets of, and just like flinging bombs at one another from our little, like our our little huddles online. And everyone thinks they have the right answer and all the answers and nobody else has any of the truth and we're all going to save the church. And um, there, there is this, this kind of really um, sad dynamic, I think present in some ways. I do. I just, it's come Lord Jesus, man. I mean, we just need, you know, we just only the Lord, I'm not the savior. Uh, none of our right. ideas are going to save the church. Like it's only going to be by an act of an act of the Lord that, and I, but I think it's, I think it's coming. Like, I think, I don't think he's, I, I don't think our God is going to leave us, you know, his word will not return to him void. Yeah. Well, the, to close it out here, um, one of my favorite questions to ask people is just like, what are you excited about? What's the Lord doing that gives you hope gives you energy let's end on a high note here what are you feeling like all right jesus is in that yeah yeah uh, a lot of things i mean i do i think um for me i always like with even with this bio song the other day works in ministry we're talking about you know we're all so engaged in the world of apostolates and ministries and who's doing what and what you know plans are being put in action from this diocese or that diocese or this and like i like we it comes back down all the time. Like I think of all of the people like on the ground right now today, whose lives are being transformed. And like, you just, when you meet people who are 
we live in such a bubble in our little ministry space, but there's people out there whose lives are being like, you know, they're, they're meeting Jesus right now today. Like that excites me. I think, I, I think I'm excited to see what God will do in terms of, um, you know, I've been reading some Francis Chan during this quarantine, um, his book letters to the church. And, um, he had a very similar experience of kind of becoming a little bit disillusioned with some of the mega church model that he had established. So he took a year off and went to Hong Kong and did ministry there and then came back and kind of started this church planning model. And I have been, I've always been interested by, you know, what, in response to all these crises, when you look at the rise of the Benedictines, you know, or, or the, the mendicant orders, the, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, or you look at some of the, the counter-reformation efforts by the church, like it's always been kind of these, these people living holiness community and mission together, like I talked about. And I'm interested to see what kind of new models can emerge there for Catholics to do that. Like um, not, not, you know, not, to replace the parish, but kind of as, you know, supplemental ways that people can begin, especially as, as parishes grow larger and larger, what are ways that we can bring some of the qualities and characteristics of some of those? If this is the age of the laity, it would make sense that um, these these perennial tools that the Lord uses to bring renewal would now start to be in some ways engaged in the life of the, of the laity. So some of those models, I think, are interesting to me. I'd, I'd be interested to see um, you know, what, what the Lord can do with that. So that's exciting to me too. Yeah. No, praise God. Well, this is fun. And I hope, uh, this definitely felt like one of our conversations. <laughs> it kind of felt <laughs> like, uh, it's like I looked down at the time. I was like, Oh, 58 minutes. That's, uh, that went fast. Thank you oh, for, yeah. for engaging dude. And we will, uh, definitely have you on again. All right. Yeah. It sounds good. I appreciate it, Pete. I hope we didn't, uh, I hope I didn't, uh, dismay anyone. I think there's a lot of reasons for, for hope. But um, I do think looking at the uh, l- looking at the problem helps us to start to burn to find a solution. So I think it's worthwhile in some ways. No, I mean we can't we can't have a discussion about this hour in the church with blinders on or our heads in the sand. Uh, and honestly, it's it's one of the first steps towards healing is recognizing the problem yeah. uh, in its fullness. And I think what we saw in 2018 was an example of when a wound is only superficially dealt with earlier on, you know, 2006 area, 2002 even. Um, and there's just more. And if you don't go all the way down to the root, it lingers. So, um, no brother, I think this was good. And, and what am I doing in my own life about it right now? Like to, I guess this is probably a good note to end on. Like what you asked at the beginning, you know, what are the things that are on my prayer and my heart? And it's certainly been come to me, all you labor who are weary and I will, and I will give you rest. But you know how like God's been doing that in our life is like repentance. I have found myself in the last like four months repenting, like from the bottom of my heart more than I ever have like lament, you know, like legitimate lament over my own. Uh, it, it, that has been a very freeing place to be in my own life. I think, I think a similar thing would be, you know, beautifully kind of could be beautifully carried out in our church as well. But I think that's where it begins, like getting to the root of it in my own heart and just saying like, genuinely sorry. Like I think we, even with our, even with our sacramental confession, which makes repentance like so obvious and real, like we really struggle sometimes to just like look at at the, the wound in the face and say like, wow, like what has this cost others because of my own, um, my own sin and how can I, open that place up in like deep sorrow for you to, for you to fill. Like the Lord wants to rush into that. So repentance, I think is a, is a great place to start uh, and maybe end this podcast. <laughs> yeah, perfect, man. Well, Hey, great talking to you. Uh, much love to Maggie and the kids and we'll talk again soon. All right. Sounds good. Thanks brother. That was Tim Glimkowski. And uh, I hope you could tell that I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation and we talked after we were done recording that. I think um, I think we're going to do this on a more regular basis. I, I really value Tim's perspective and the depth of knowledge he brings to a variety of subjects. And, uh, and I just like talking to him. So I hope you enjoyed it. And if you'd like to get more information about Tim and what he's doing or book him for a speaking opportunity, you can go to Tim, spelled like Tim, T-I-M, glemkowski.com. Glemkowski, G-L-E-M-K-O-W-S-K-I.com. Or you can just click the link in the description of this podcast. I probably should have just done that before I spelled it out. I want to leave you with just a short reflection on uh, the Sunday readings from this past weekend. 
And one of our country coordinators at Renewal Ministries, Tom Edwards, gave a sharing at our country coordinator meeting a couple years ago that stuck with me regarding this passage. And it's a passage that we've heard many times, uh, the parable of the sower, where the sower goes out and, and spreads the seed and four different soils the seed lands on. And three out of the four are, are problematic. They are, they're not fruitful or not fully fruitful. And there's one soil, the good soil, that bears fruit 10, 20, 30, 100 fold. And what Tom brought up, which I thought was really interesting, was the fact that within the human heart, all four soils are both possible and probably existing in most of our hearts. That within our heart at all times, we have good soil, we have rocky soil, we have thorny soil, and we have the path. And his point was that every time the word is spoken, every single time we interact with the word of God, with the gospel message, with the inspiration of the spirit, a seed is sown into our hearts. And the question is, is it going to land on the path to be picked off by the birds and the distractions and the cares of the world? Is it going to land within the rocks and not be watered and not be tended and and uh, have very shallow roots and, and quickly die out and not bear fruit? Is it going to go amongst the thorns and be choked by the sin in our life that, and the sin in our heart that threatens to, to rob us of, of the joy and the grace that the Lord has for us? Or is it going to fall in fertile, healthy, watered, tended ground that then, then can bear fruit for us? And Tom's encouragement was to be vigilant in identifying the different soil within your heart and moving each of those soils towards good soil and recognizing that even for us who have decided to follow Jesus, the soil of our heart has the potential to be rocky, to be arid, and certainly for weeds to spring up, unrepentant sin, um, even affection for sin that some of the saints talk about. These roots of sin that are maintained if we don't root them out, if we don't take them out by the root, all the way down to the core. And I just wanted to encourage you that because um, often we think about the parable of sore as to our missionary efforts and the fact that we're going to go out and spread the seed of the gospel and some people are going to be, and we kind of justify them as like, oh, they're they would be path or rocky or, or thorny or good soil. And that is that fully encapsulates who they are. But the fact of the matter is when we spread the seed, there's going to be good soil. There's going to be all four probably in every human heart that we encounter. And that's worth paying attention to. But it's also very worth paying attention to our own heart, saying, where are the weeds? Where are the rocks? Where's the path? And what does the Lord want to do about that? And surrendering that over to him so that as best as possible, we can live with fertile ground, always ready and receptive to receive the seeds of the gospel to see that implantation of God's word in our heart so that it may bear fruit. So the encouragement this week is let's foster the good soil of our heart and take care of the bad soil in the power of the Holy Spirit. This has been The Hour. I'm Pete Burak. Hope you're enjoying the show. If you like this, please subscribe to whatever podcast uh, platform you're listening. And then certainly give us a rating. That, that helps get the word out. And then even better is to give a review. We had our first review on Apple Podcasts. Totally made my day. Thank you for that. Uh, but yeah, the more we can like this, the more we can share this, the more we can review it and give it a rating, uh, the more likely people are going to encounter what is hopefully life-giving words from this show. We'll be back next week. Uh, I'm Pete Burak. This is The Hour. God bless.